you definitely have to have an, another level of proving yourself um, as a marketer and potentially as a female, which isn't, um, I don't think anyone's intentionally that way, but it's still an issue in society at large. B2B has the potential to be electrifying. But the industry is paralysed by a culture of conservatism, scared stiff in a straitjacket of rational ideas. It's time for change. It's time to make B2B marketing visceral. Join us as we uncover and explore the truth with leading B2B marketers. This is B2B marketing, the provocative truth. Hello and welcome to B2B Marketing, The Provocative Truth. I'm Benedict and today I'm joined by Rosie Guest, who is Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at Apex Group. Welcome to B2B Marketing, The Provocative Truth. This is where we give you a quick 30 seconds to introduce yourself. So Rosie, please tell the audience who you are and a little bit about your experience. Thanks, yeah. I am Rosie, as you just said, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at Apex Group. I've been at Apex for about 10 years. I am passionate about marketing, communications, particularly around women's empowerment as well. I work in financial services, so mm -hmm. it's not the easiest place for women. Um, so that's another kind of element that I bring into my role now that I'm in the C-suite. Brilliant, brilliant. And today we're going to be talking about marketing as a strategic partner, looking at how marketing is you know, an integral part of scaling a business. Um, now, perversely, given what I've just said there, I'm going to start with a provocative truth, which we'll see whether it rings true, is that despite a lot of progress that's made in marketing, despite, you know, I think conceptions changing as well, it's still viewed more as a sort of a business service centre than potentially a business strategic partner. Is that something that you agree with? I definitely agree. That's mm. how it's how it's still seen. Yeah, Apex was still referred to as a support group, mm. um, but I I think conversely that's not what it is. But that's mm. our role to to change that perception. And I've seen it changing over time, but there's still work to be done. I can imagine. And you know, I'm going to get on to sort of talking about what a business strategic partner is. But when you're sort of talking about how they they see you more as that service center or support group i think is what you said mm -hmm. like how does that sort of manifest in terms of the way that they either interact with you or the types of conversations that you're brought into i think marketing is quite often forgotten mm. that's one of, one of the things and, and within my remit it's marketing and communications which yep. are two separate things but one and the same at the mm -hmm, same time mm -hmm. um, and I think that most of the time from our perspective it's just not seen as strategic in that way in mm -hmm. the initial part of the conversation mm -hmm. so we tend to be not brought in early enough to form the conversation yeah. so whether that's around product innovation revenue generation all of the things that marketing are intrinsically involved in mm -hmm. you just don't get brought in early enough so i think that's where i see the biggest piece of damage it's kind of an afterthought oh yeah marketing you can't, yeah. you need to promote that but there's a whole heap of other things that need to happen so as you start to shift perceptions that's where you get brought in earlier in the conversation and you can add more value. Absolutely. And in terms of shifting those perceptions, which I think there'll be some structural restrictions as well, but that's almost half the battle, isn't it? Really showing, showing that value. How have you gone about communicating the importance of marketing being involved upstream, whether it's in relation to product innovation or you know, any other sort of part of you know, business? I've been quite lucky at Apex because I've been at Apex as it's gone on this mammoth journey of growth. So mm. when I first joined, there was no marketing function. I was the first kind of full-time marketer that came into a company of about 300 people. Mm. So I really had an opportunity to found that function and what that looks like and luckily reported into the CEO. So had that Great. direct 
in with him mm -hmm. so really my first two years I would say were spent putting the foundations in place to help the business understand that marketing's not here just to create flyers and I kind of act as a service center yeah. as you just touched on <laughs> but to actually drive that strategic direction around what are we what is our messaging mm -hmm. how are we promoting these products uh, and inform that to provide to the sales or the or the field teams rather than the other way around so laying that groundwork was really for me around data and proving yeah. the points so getting you know the marketing automation salesforce all of that connected together once that was done you're able to to demonstrate and particularly important in financial services the data behind revenue and how you're contributing mm. to the bottom line and as soon as you can make that case the rest comes with it but that foundation has to be there and that's what i started with i think it, 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 it clearly data is it's so so important and also really showing marketing's impact when it comes to revenue um, is how you sort of win that, win that battle. Now, for you, when you were you know, communicating that message, was it a case that you were having to actually encroach on traditionally salespeople's territory um, and sort of communicate marketing's worth through that? Or was it really just like it was a big open space that nobody had considered, um, you know, what the sort of right uh, analysis is of revenue attribution? The latter. It yeah. was a very big open space because, again, the way in which Apex has evolved, we start. We didn't have really a sales team mm. then either. And the luxury for me coming from a sales background, I was able to bring that commercial element mm. to my marketing role and start those conversations. So there was no data team, there was no sales team. So sort of getting Salesforce, which is our CRM, yeah. and all of the information together to demonstrate to the business we can monitor revenue and we can start this process ha has been part of how I've managed mm. to make that case. Do you think salespeople make better marketers? Oh, that's a very interesting <laughs> question. Some, depends. Very I think, diplomatic. <laughs> I think the role of a salesperson has changed a lot in the yeah. last 10 years and, and vice versa for marketing. So I think good salespeople can be marketers and the other way around, mm. but it depends on the characteristics. Of course. Well, as I said, I'm very, very well tiptoed around there before, <laughs> without saying anything that's going to upset anybody. Um, but if we were to look at, say, your experience, you, you've, you've come from sales and clearly that gives you that sort of commercial acumen that you've just referred to. But... In real sort of practical terms, what what skill sets um, or talents did you, if you like, did you have that you felt um, some of your peers within marketing, and that's in a broader sense, not just your direct peers within your department, had? Yeah, what what were those key sort of advantages? I think one of the important things that you learn in sales and probably as a salesperson naturally have in your personality is that kind of accountability for demonstrating what mm -hmm. you're bringing to the table. And I think often marketers, unless they're asked to do that, shy away from that. Mm -hmm. So things like revenue targets or you know KPIs weren't things that were given to me, the things that I've sort of enforced on myself. Mm. But it keeps me honest, it keeps me accountable, but it enables me to demonstrate the value of what I'm doing. So yeah. I think accountability for your work, which is also something that my team would probably tell you, I talk about all the time, being <laughs> accountable is a big part of what I've taken from sales. And also just getting a bit of a thick skin in being able to ride through the rough mm. times. You know, as a salesperson, you reject it all the time. You have to retell the story several different ways in order to win the deal. And it's very much the same in marketing and positioning marketing within a business as well. That is interesting. I, I want to pick that back up in terms of the, the thick skinnedness, but just quickly, do you think there is a lack of accountability in marketing then? I do, yeah, I mm. do. I think that traditionally 
it's you know been a creative space mm -hmm. solely but that's not viable anymore you mm. know you have to be creative and commercial at the same time well certainly in financial services and certainly in a company like apex which is private equity backed i don't think i would have survived if i hadn't come from a sales background where i could deal with those kinds of stakeholders and talk revenue and commercials um and i think that that's potentially why maybe not an intentional shying away but just a not not mm. a natural inclination to have accountability for work. I often see campaigns run for a long period of time or people talk about, we hope to achieve this. And I hate that word yes. um, because there's no accountability for actually delivering on a target or an objective if you just say, we hope. So I do think marketers need to be a bit stronger with their objectives mm. and measurement in achieving those. Yeah, and it's definitely something that I, I agree with. It's something I've been sort of playing around with actually over the past couple of weeks and we've been talking about in the agency is, there's there's a lot of marketers that have big ambitions that want to achieve certain things and there's often an excuse for why they don't and actually it sort of got me thinking is well maybe actually there needs to be greater accountability and rather than it being an excuse be like well it's a problem i'm just going to solve um so it's very very interesting that you say that um so if we're thinking about sort of introducing a greater culture of accountability some of it just comes from within an experience like you've just described, but also it can come from knowing how you're going to measure things and being consistent with how you measure things. From your sort of experience, what are those really, really key metrics that need to be applied to marketing to see that that department is performing? I think it depends on your industry. So, yeah. uh, so for Apex, for example, we aren't a retail business and we aren't a transactional business. Our sales cycle is really long. It's six to six mm. months to two years sometimes. So for us, we look at marketing influence as yep. well as marketing sourced revenue, mm -hmm. because unless you get a great bluebird that comes in or a campaign's gone really well, most of the time it's a multitude of mm -hmm. marketing mm -hmm. activities. Um, deal size is another one we look at comparing sales only deal size versus where marketing mm. has been involved. So I think it's making sure that you're looking at the things that can demonstrate tangible impacts. There's the other danger of picking things and saying, oh, marketing had an influence on yes. that. And then you just discredit any kind of value that marketing's bringing because it needs to be a clear link. So I think the metrics and, and also the planning of the metrics mm -hmm. prior to the campaign needs to be clear. What are we trying to achieve? What are our activities and how are we going to measure those? And if that lack of planning is, is you know, not existing, mm. then that can be a problem. Definitely. And just very quickly, I want to take it to a super you know, practical level there. And we're talking around sort of um, tracking and understanding marketing influence. How do you go about that? What, what are the ways of really with, you know, a high degree of confidence saying that this is marketing influence? So if we're looking at grading and scoring, which we yep. use um, a lot, I think it's making sure you put time limits on that grading and mm -hmm. scoring. So for us, you know, you can't just have an open-ended building up a score over two years if actually really the sort of period in which you're going to catch someone is three months yeah so it's i think it's having that conversation with your sales team as mm -hmm. well and not assuming that marketing know how that might work so we work really closely with the sales team to understand exactly how they feel that clients might interact mm -hmm. and build that into our grading and scoring method and then from there that's how we would build into our metrics model nice and that actually leads me quite nicely to my next question and you spoke 
probably about a couple of minutes ago around the importance of joint planning, joint deciding what you're going to sort of measure. And you've just so spoken there about sort of collaborating with sales to determine, well, realistically, what are those periods of influence and, and, and whatnot. So when you are going through that sort of planning cycle, um, and especially in the context of what we're talking about here, which is how you know marketing can be a strategic business partner, who who do you interface with, and you know how do you structure those sort of joint planning sessions to make sure that people are getting represented, and also marketing is getting represented? That's a really interesting question because I always see and hear that everybody does these kind of big planning sessions at the beginning mm. of the year and there might be a kind of look back or a look forward mid-year or quarterly and it's all kind of timed that's never worked for us um it's always been a very organic process so to answer your question about who do we interface yeah. with um myself very work very closely with the ceo and the chief revenue mm. officer to sort of take in that top level what's mm -hmm. our, our objectives what are our revenue yeah. targets etc and then the way that i've structured my team is is the, is the way that the business is structured. So the head of portfolio marketing links in with the chief product officer, yep. the head of demand marketing links in with the head of sales. And so, and other departments by way. <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> uh, and so that continual engagement, because yeah. also Apex is, is hyper growth, right? Mm -hmm. We've tripled, quadrupled our revenue in a matter of years. So keeping pace with the change market changes we've had a pandemic we've you know we're now moving into potentially a financial crisis again mm. how do we you know long-term plans don't really work so that constant interface continually with those key stakeholders and understanding on a daily basis a weekly basis what those objectives are and pivoting yeah. or, or, or amending how things are is what's been working for us so do you you have a forum on a weekly basis where you are working outside of your department you, you, you really are interfacing with all sorts of people within the business all the time yeah and the other thing that's been really beneficial with positioning marketing to be able to do that has been our M&A strategy yeah because we've been so involved in bringing these companies in mm. and it's really sort of solidified how marketing and comms is across everything ops finance mm. comms people revenue all of it so that has been a good stepping stone going back to what we were talking about earlier yes. in bringing us in earlier in the conversation yes i mean i know and just in terms of coming into this i appreciate apex have been particularly acquisitive <laughs> which is um and i've often wondered and i've had conversations actually in other podcasts about this as well is typically when an acquisition is made or there is a merger that marketing are involved once they're brought in and it's a case of, okay, well, what do we do from a brand perspective? You know, are we gonna go down the house of brands route, branded house route? Um, is it gonna be an aligned proposition? Are we gonna have a nuanced proposition, et cetera, et cetera. But it's always kind of after the event. Whereas almost what I'm hearing from you there is that marketing are, a, have a seat at the table when it comes to making that decision and advising on what is the strategic advantage and benefit of potentially acquiring a company. So we have an M&A team, yeah. but yes, in, in answer to your question, we have visibility, again, through getting that C-suite role. That's mm. really transformed what we're able to, because I have access to those conversations Absolutely, now, yeah. and I, I have visibility of the pipeline of acquisitions, some of which don't get made, some of which yeah. do. So being able to have that advanced look mm. gives you the ability. And 
obviously I always say this with acquisitions, you don't really know what you've got until you close the deal. So you may have had a great plan and then once it's closed that yeah. changes. But having yeah that advanced visibility of what's coming and being able to think how that fits in with the structure and then advise as you say, this is where, where it would make sense from a marketing and branding perspective. And taking into consideration all the other things yeah. that might have been agreed in the deal. Um, that's really useful. I think it's, it's such a, a simple solution, which is to have, you know, marketing as a C-suite, um, you know, job title as, as represented within the, the C-suite. But when we're thinking about it from a sort of emergent acquisition perspective, actually such a vital input to have because when you look at a lot of um, merging acquisitions that go wrong, it's because they, quite frankly, they screw up the brand around it. They don't understand the brand equity that they're about to lose because of decisions that they're going to make. And or they don't understand around the sort of the real sort of fundamental compatibility between them. So having marketing represent, I think, is a very, very key thing. Yeah. And that and around deal failure, one of the mm. other biggest, the biggest reasons, I think it was a Deloitte report that found one of those biggest reasons for deal failure was failure to integrate culturally, which is brand yes, as well because 100%. that loyalty to the brand so if the people don't understand why and they don't feel part of apex then how are their clients going to feel and it's just mm. a knock-on effect so yeah that, and then there's that's the comms element which is inextricably linked with marketing Definitely. as well yeah i mean it's an always and unfortunately always overlooked mm -hmm. in terms of the the role of brand when it comes to your internal audience and actually that needs to in some respects be your starting point yeah. not just an afterthought uh, which it so often is now we could we could go down a, a very very sort of interesting rabbit hole talking about that but that may be a conversation for another time something that I wanted to bring back actually um, which I'm going to tie together a couple of things that you've said and you talked about the importance of having a thick skin and you also spoke at the very very beginning around um, the work that you have done and also, you know, the passion that you have for female uh, representation, female empowerment within businesses as well. And if we're thinking about in the context of, you know, how do we make sure that marketing is you know, respected and represented? Have you found that it's been difficult because of those gender dynamics or, you know, are we past that? No, we're not past no. that for sure. It's an interesting question because, and I've thought about it a lot, because mm. there's scenarios where I think, is that because they don't respect marketing or is that the gender mm. or is the the age element? Because yes, there's a multitude yes, yeah. of them for, a, for a, a CMO or a CMCO in financial services, they don't tend to look like me. So <laughs> that's, you could see that as a disadvantage, yes. but what I have found talking about you know, finding that mm. um, strength and that robustness in mm. your personality and how you do your job is I always feel that that underestimation of potentially because I'm a young female and definitely because I'm a marketer, you walk into the room and you're immediately underestimated. Mm. But I've learned to see that as a, a power. Yes. Because it means I know in that space, I know what I'm doing. And it's always fun to see a raised eyebrow. So, you know, you get into the board call and it's like, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> she actually understands the business, the product, she knows what she's doing. It's all of these departments, mm. you know, marketing actually does know what it's doing. So I, I would always encourage marketers because we all experience it. And it's that age old thing of everyone can read and everyone can write and see things. So everyone has an opinion. Yes. Um, and so there's like an underlying lack of respect, but, when you when you flip that on its head and you walk into it and use that as an advantage, 
that's been a, a game changer for me. Yeah, no, I can. So you you do feel that almost the threshold is that much higher for you that you've got to get over them. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You think you you definitely have to have an, another level of proving yourself. Mm. Um, as a marketer and potentially as a female, which isn't, yeah. um, I don't think anyone's intentionally that way, but mm. it's still an issue in society at large. Oh, I mean, absolutely. We see evidence of it you know, on a daily basis, really, really sadly. Um, and just to explore this a little bit further, and this doesn't necessarily even relate to, to marketing, but you, know, you talked about how you, you used that actually almost as a sort of a, a secret power mm-hmm. um and that's almost sounding that you, you used it in a sort of quite sort of cute way to unlock it so do you do you feel that it is possible to get that sort of respect get that sort of representation without going down the route of what are traditionally masculine characteristics or masculine communication styles within that sort of context a hundred percent and i think that you know for me particularly one of the things that i think is refreshing for Mm. other people is that potentially I don't fit the mold that they would expect. Mm. And I am a communicator, I'm a a marketer, and my style is relatively relaxed. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be, you know, walking into a room with kind of a stern face and having that kind of persona. It's just not who I am. But I think that that you don't need to. And I I think that was an important lesson for me Mm -hmm. to learn as well, because there were times in my career where I definitely tried to be like, okay, that's what you're supposed to act like when you're at this level. Um, And you don't, you just need to be yourself. Obviously, there's being professional, but building those relationships has been crucial to me progressing in my career and people talk about mentors a lot for me I haven't had really a mentor and certainly not any female mentors Mm, mm. that that have gone before me for me it's much more been about sponsors yeah so where are your relationships in the organization and the strange ones the ones that people wouldn't expect are the best ones so for example I have a really strong relationship with our CFO people don't naturally make that link but that gives me amazing access to what's going on in the finance Mm -hmm. side of things I learn from him all the time so it's I think it's important to just be who you are and it's never been a hindrance to me once you learn to harness it yeah can be powerful no that's really good and I think I like the way you talk about sponsors actually because yeah, a, a mentor is uh, obviously within the relationship. It's not passive, but there's almost like a bit of a passive aspect. Whereas a sponsor is someone who's actively pushing you forward. And you know, whether you're doing it cynically or actually you're just doing it because it is, as you said, it's a learning experience. I think it can be hugely positive. Now, my penultimate question is: Now we've spoken around, and indeed, you just said there about you've built that relationship with the CFO that gives you certain sort of language that you can use, gives you certain understanding that you're able to sort of um, communicate with. Do you feel that there's any danger of that marketing might end up going too far towards the commercial and language of business and forget that sort of creative magic and spark? No, um, no, definitely not. Because I think if you're in marketing, you're always going to have an element of creative yeah. to you. And and that's the challenge. That's why I actually love my job in financial mm. services, because it's not a particularly on the surface sexy industry. But that's what makes it fun, because yes. I, ha- I have to be creative. How do I make traditional financial services engaging, interesting in the world that we live in today, which is you need personalised communications, you need to get to the emotion in a person, how do you do that from financial services product to a person's emotion? Yeah. So it's a nice challenge that, that we can rise to, I think, in B2B. Brilliant. And on the subject of emotion, that's our, my final question, which um, 
as you know, we are all around um, provoking the truth here, Alan, and we've got this mission, which is to make B2B marketing visceral. So my final question is, when was the last time that you saw um, a piece of communication, uh, a campaign, an advert that really made you have that strong emotional reaction that you really felt in your guts? So this is a B2B example mm-hmm. that, I, that I saw recently, but as a B2C, did I say that? You said B2B, but B2B, no. you've corrected yourself, so it's B2C, correcting. don't worry. B2C <laughs> example. Um, but I always think B2B can learn from B2C yeah, absolutely, for yes. that reason, because B2C has always been about the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an insurance, so it's not that far off of financial services, insurance firm called Many Pets, it's pet insurance. Okay. They recently released a campaign that is so clever and I am an animal lover myself. I have a dog, so that's why it kind of yeah. resonated with me. But what they they did is it's very simple. It's really close up shots of pets with words like endorphins or personal trainer or um, stress ball and like a cute yeah. photo of a cat. And underneath they've got a small bit around stats. So they'll say, you know, statistically, it, research has found that engaging or playing with your cat or engaging with your dog has increased endorphins or Mm. um you know walking for half an hour a day is good for your mental health and I think that that clever link right between insurance and how you keep your mental health good your Mm -hmm, physical mm -hmm. health good and actually that's through your beloved pet is really clever and they've done it in a matter of like four or five words and a photograph yeah um so I think making an insurance product really interesting and immediately tapping into the emotion in a human, it's really clever. And I think the more we can try to do that with financial services, the better. Well, that's your holy grail. You've got your your, your emotional connection, which is the cute, fluffy, insert name of an animal. Yeah. And then you've got your rational, which is um, your stats, which actually sort of like back that up. Um, so look, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I've also really enjoyed the pace of the conversation. I don't know if you found it sort of pacey, but I found it pacey and I found it pacey in a really, really good way. Um, but I think learn a hell of a lot. Um, now, obviously, I'm going to sort of be over sort of simplifying this, but yeah, it's really, really clear the importance of learning the language of the business clearly, but also learning the language by building the relationships throughout the business. Um, and then as we touched on lastly, but without losing that little bit of je ne sais quoi, uh, which comes from being a fantastic marketer. So, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, really, really enjoyed that. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. b Marketing, The Provocative Truth is brought to you by Allen Agency. To find out more, head to allen-agency.com. You can stream B2B Marketing The Provocative Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. And don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Allen, thanks for listening.